Hello and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep our history alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis. At Heritage Janelle, we've been thinking a lot lately about traditional skills and traditional practices, in particular those traditional skills that might be at risk in the province. One of those skills we've been talking about is dry stone walling, the art of building dry stone walls and foundations using stones without mortar. Several years ago, I sat down with Dan Snow, a Vermont dry stone waller who was in English Harbor, teaching a course at the English Harbor Arts Centre. And I guess just to start off, uh, can, you, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your background, how you got involved with, with dry stone wall work? Through being an artist and needing materials to make sculpture, but uh, not having any money and looking around and seeing that mostly what I saw was uh, wood and stone. Uh, wanted to work outdoors, but realized pretty quickly that if I put wood outdoors, it would rot. So that left me with stone. <laughs> yeah, that's how I got started. Although it really meant finding a way to make a living working with stone. So I became a dry stone waller first, and over the last 30 to 35 years now, been trying to make my work closer to art making and less on the practical side. Right. So how did you, how did you start out um, learning some of that, that walling, uh, that, that technology, that, that, that body of knowledge? Did you, did you learn from, from people in the, in the area? I learned general masonry from a master mason, but that was more about building fireplaces, uh, doing brickwork, really the uh, wet masonry work. There really wasn't anyone around, at least not anyone employing people who wanted to do stonework, so the dry stone work was up to me to find a, a way into it myself. Learning really was a matter of being hired to repair things, seeing how those things had fallen apart, yeah. and trying not to duplicate that part of the work. <clears throat> yeah. So how many years have you been been involved with working with stone? This is the 35th year that I've been in business as a professional waller. Um, before that, really starting from high school through college years, just in general construction. So those prepared me for knowing how to do a bunch of different things with my hands. And that uh, got narrowed down to the dry stone work after uh, being in construction for a few years on my own. Right. Yeah. What's the um, what's the physical landscape like where, where you're living and working in the in the U.S. in terms of the the dry stone wall tradition? I guess it's not that different than this part of Newfoundland in that there's a lot of rolling hills. There are narrow valleys. The, the uh, farming there is primarily, or in the past, has been hill farming. Not a lot of broad valleys in uh, southeastern Vermont. Only thing we're missing is the ocean. And how long have people been making dry stone walls in that part of the world? Vermont is a little bit a latecomer in colonization uh, after being an independent nation for, I think, eight years. We went ahead and uh, became a colony, so I guess it would be the 13th. 
um, uh, and a, a state when things turn that way. But I guess uh, settlement in Vermont mostly started uh, early 1700s. So we just were 100 years behind a lot of what got started in Massachusetts and Connecticut. And in, in terms of uh, dry stone wall work, what, what remains from that, that period? Is there, is there much left? I don't know that the earliest settlers would have gotten that involved with dry stone work except in the making of building foundations because they had a lot of wood to clear. They would have naturally used that as their fencing material once that was gone, once the the uh, loft of the original soil they found got compressed, got washed away from the activity on the land, and the loose stones started coming up, and what had been kind of virgin soil became a rocky landscape. All the trees were gone, so keep fencing things in. They needed to use something, and the stone was the obvious choice. But maybe closer to uh, early 1800s would have been when many of the walls were built. Yeah. And is the is the type of um, stone walling that you see there, is it, is it similar to what you've seen in other parts of the, of the U.S.? Similar techniques? I'm trying to think of what other areas I could compare it to. <coughs> um, because it's field stone, glacial till, it's random coursing. There are places where there are more coarsed walling methods used, and often that's material that has been broken out of the bedrock. I'm thinking mostly of Kentucky <coughs> that has a rich walling history around its horse farming, actually. Mm. And that material is limestone, and it's very clearly bedded material. Whereas in Vermont, as far south as Rhode Island, mm. The land is really littered with rounded glacial erratics, uh, glacial till, and that's what most of the walls are made out of. So, so what sort of impact does that have on the, on the the way in which the walls are constructed? That that type of material, what what type of wall does that result in? I think less of a standardized wall that you would say it needs to be built a certain way because all the materials are a certain type with the odd shapes and variety of sizes. They were really working very local where one hillside or one valley would have a certain selection of stone, uh, either because the bedrock is that type and there's a lot of different bedrocks in Vermont. It's probably as uh, Newfoundland is to Canada, Vermont would be to the U.S. in terms of its geologic variety. The bedrock might produce very different stones from one area to the other, and the same thing with the uh, glacial till, that some areas would have gotten a lot more <laughs> of those prizes than, than others. I don't know if the farmers would have thought of them that way. So very localized, I don't know if you can even call them traditions, because they may have perhaps only lasted for uh, five or six generations in the, most of what was done with field stone work. Hard to, hard to say that there's any one type of walling that goes on there. Right. 
in terms of it being a, a tradition, I guess, was it a... Um, was it a professionalized thing? Were there people who were who were hired on to build walls, or would it be something that you know your average farmer would have had a basic knowledge of of doing? I've heard different stories about that. Um, I I know of one person whose father had a farm and uh, would have a gang of wallers come through the area and hire them on for a few weeks and do a specific project, and then they'd move on to another farm. So that would have perhaps been a later time because uh, that was perhaps a hundred years ago. Many times, I think the type of farming that was done was not uh, very large in scope. It was more family farms and people were doing things for themselves uh, every inch of the way. So the walling work probably, for the most part, would have been done by the farmers who were at... Uh, at the practice of farming. Whereas in Kentucky, I think a lot of those walls were uh, built by uh, immigrant labor uh, gangs that were brought in specifically to build those walls. And that may be another reason they're more standardized. They were given a prescribed size and shape to build and so much per length to get it done. Now you you mentioned right when we started chatting that you you came to this as an artist, and that uh, this is still something that you are, you know, sort of involved with that this idea of sort of environmental art, and I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about what what that is. What does that mean, um, environmental art? To me, environmental art is to be able to go into a landscape, use it as a resource both creatively uh, and material-wise. Hopefully, even if the work that's done is in stark contrast to its surroundings, that its presence is not an invasion, that it might be uh, something that was out of the ordinary, not necessarily trying to be... uh, piece of the built landscape as we know it, which is more often utility works, capitalizing on the materials at hand, trying to use as locally sourced materials as possible, really taking the landscape as the inspiration in, in all aspects and using it as the... the uh, the grist for the creative mill. Mm-hmm. What, what do you see the, as the potentials for this for that type of work, that type of environmental art? I think it's the salvation of mankind. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing less than that. <laughs> Just uh, to be able to have a, a light touch on our surroundings and have it come through the creative spirit, to me that is where we can go. Uh, We've already made just about everything we need to to satisfy our physical needs. We have a really strong urge to make things, so art on the landscape seems like the course that we need to follow from this point. 
when you, when you're working on a piece, where 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 in the process does that creative spirit enter in? When you when you go to a, a do you start with the site? Do you start with the materials? Do you have a vision before you begin, or does it evolve as you as you work? In the case of coming to English Harbor as an instructor, I've had to coordinate the site, the materials, and the group to try and craft a week-long uh, activity that suits the, the numbers of people, uh, their level of um, knowledge in a craft, and also the uh, weather conditions that <laughs> could possibly be met. We've had good luck so far for these workshops. And we're the best group he's ever had. Uh, yes, and the, the current group is just phenomenal. Yeah. <laughs> and you're not saying that because they're in the, in the room. Oh, are there any? <laughs> he did say that. Yeah. Okay, can you talk a little bit about the, 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 the projects that you've been working on in English Harbor? What, what, have, you been, what have you been building? We've had this uh, summer, at this point, two projects completed and one in the process, and another one that just got started today. So on a, quite a variety. One was a piece that was made from an existing dump of stone, a place that at some point in English Harbor's history, stone was taken out of the fields, cast into a pile, make the land more tillable, I suppose. And there it sat for however many hundred years until we got our hands on it really cracked open this pile to have it as our stockpile, made a piece in what had been the center of the pile using that stone that was there primarily. The shape happens to be squarish, about six feet tall, so almost a, a small enclosure that has a freestanding object of stone in the center of it supported with spruce logs from the outside walls. So it's kind of a, a tender piece of stonework in the center, dry stone construction, with uh, tension members, the spruce poles, helping to keep it erect by the support of the outside walls. And that was a, a fun project two weeks ago. This week the group decided on a boat shape Maybe the beach stone that was collected to make it was uh, helped to inspire them towards something uh, of the sea. And that has come along, or oh, maybe it's uh, at this point uh, more than a third completed. It has a beautiful curved com compound curved sides and uh, waiting to get a bow on it. But it's, at this point, really beginning to take the shape of a boat. It's very beautiful, an upturned boat. The part that's been finished with uh, the work of three of the participants is a restoration of a portion of the wall that had been supporting a road right outside the art center, which was uh, formerly a church. So this retaining wall had collapsed over the years and got taken apart and about a six-by-six-foot section rebuilt in the first couple of days. And the third uh, construction that started today will be a spiraling freestanding wall. 
And these are all happening around the around the quite, church, quite close, quite close to the, the church. church building. Yeah. yeah, and are they meant to be um, permanent structures, or are they more ephemeral pieces of art? I know the last year when you were here, you created a piece that wasn't meant to be kept uh, in, a, in in its finished sense. What's what's happening this year? Well, we did do one ephemeral piece on the beach in uh, Green Bay. We took about a two-hour hike through the rain to uh, that piece of beach, did a uh, kind of a sketch in the beach stone there. But uh, last year's work was on the line of what had been an old wall. Most of the structure of that wall was completely gone. Using some lead line rope, draping it five or six times to make peaks. The stone from that pile was just brought up into very slender and uh, light-filled crests. So in profile, it was uh, a long stretch of almost like a netting across the horizon. Very easy to create a strong effect with very little material and uh, just the time of a few folks but it's not intended to last very long. Mm -hmm. Almost as soon as there's a strong wind, especially the, the peaks, which are could be stones the size of a baseball, just, uh, just sort of jumping up the uh, the slope under the rope there, would get blown over, and so that has deteriorated, which is meant to. Mm -hmm. The pieces so far this year that are around the church grounds and in the village are hopefully permanent structures. Part of environmental art is to accept that the work is there and under the control of the artist until the artist walks away. Right. <laughs> and then uh, it's out of their hands and in the hands of the community. You In, uh, in your book, uh, Listening to Stone, uh, you had a little section in there uh, about myth-making. And there's a quote in there that I really was drawn to and it was uh, a mass of rock becomes fertile ground for myth to grow um because there is i guess this when you you have a vision as the artist i guess when you create a piece on the landscape but there is a certain permanence when you're gone you know the community as you say can layer their own meanings onto onto a piece or we or we see things in the landscape that we create meaning around am i am i interpreting that yeah, and in the in nature, we often anthropomorphize shapes. That would be a really basic idea behind what happens when, for instance, a mass of stone comes together and gets a myth wrapped around it. Uh, New Hampshire had a very famous ledge outline that was. Uh, I don't know, well, all, it was called the Old Man of the Mountain, and it was on all their license plates and very much uh, a part of the lore of New Hampshire. And a couple, maybe as many as 10 years now ago, it, uh, it, the rock face, the ledge, broke off, and there was no longer an Old Man of the Mountain, but it, it does, hasn't seemed to have affected New Hampshire's uh, uh, desire to have that as their symbol. Yeah. They still feel very strongly that that is their symbol. So it can be as simple as that there's a, a shape in nature that becomes associated with 
an animal, uh, a human face in that case. And then in building something in stone to be able to make your own myth out of it as you're making it because you're free to associate from the environment, bring those associations into a piece and formulate something new for yourself, but it doesn't mean that it's the only interpretation of the object that's made. Certainly, uh, there are lots of man-made dry stone structures that have, at this point, found their way into myth. I'm thinking of a place like Machu Picchu in Peru. Uh, haven't been there, but I feel as though there are stone structures there that just are have become iconic in that we look at them and feel that they're ours now, that the whole world's uh, stonework, but the actual original uses are long gone, and at this point it doesn't really matter what they were. It's important to historians, but I think for most of us, it's just great to feel that they're there and that, uh, that they were created by by hands. Yeah, yeah. yeah other sites like you know uh, Easter Island or Stonehenge, they do enter into that sort of collective imagination. You know that they acquire meanings that are probably very different from the the meanings that were given to them by their by their makers. Yes. Yeah. Um, when you came here to Newfoundland, was last year your first your yes. first visit? First time. <clears throat> what did you see uh, or not see when you came here, uh, when you looked at how people were using stone? Uh, uh, probably coming to English Harbor, that was really my first time in Newfoundland where I was looking carefully at the surroundings. I was impressed by the amount of loose stone, but I was uh, a little confused by the lack of structure in those collections of loose stone. So it was clear that a lot of stone had been moved at one time by hand, but I, I don't know enough about the history to say what those remnants represent. Mm -hmm. You were talking about just stone, like the stone dump that you had that you had used. Yeah. yeah, and even that, that's just my interpretation of why there was a pile of stone in that place on the landscape. Could have, could have had more of a function than just a place to discard stone. Mm -hmm. It is interesting. You know, so many of our early settlers that that came here were from places that had very strong stone building traditions. And there are certainly places in the province where there are remnants of stone walls and house foundations and root cellars, but not maybe in the abundance that you might expect, you know, with a place that has so much, so much rock. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And such a long history, really, at least for North America, of settlement that one would expect more uh, evidence Sometimes evidence is not immediately visible. In Scotland, there are a lot of really ancient remains that are underground. There, Souterrain is one example, probably Neolithic burial mound type of construction. 
beautiful objects, but unless you knew they were there, and many are still undiscovered, you wouldn't know that such a, a stone heritage existed. I think maybe in Newfoundland that might exist in the in the form of uh, the root cellars, but there are probably a lot of stonework done that is mostly concealed, if not completely. Have you had a chance to poke around any of the, the local root cellars? Not very extensively. Uh, uh, more I've been just hearing stories about ones in English Harbor and seeing uh, craters <laughs> in the landscape that uh, I've been told by residents are the sites of old root cellars. Mm. 16 foot deep dry stone constructions that lost their uh, wall and roof covering and either were filled in or the stone was used for something else, uh, but at this point are not much more than craters in the landscape. Yeah. Um, in New England, are you seeing a lot of restoration work uh, happening? People restoring, restoring older walls or older structures? Really, not as function, uh, yeah, functioning walls in the, in the respect that they are doing what they were originally intended to do, which would be to be stock-proof fences, mm -hmm. but being brought back, uh, oftentimes out of the woods. New England was mostly cleared, and then has become almost mostly reforested, but with housing development. A lot of those forests are getting clearings. Those stone structures are being exposed again. And people are interested in seeing them revitalized, uh, if nothing else, for uh, an attractive landscape feature. One of the one of the things that I'm curious about is about how any specialized trade or tradition has its own language, and that there are words that um, insiders use, you know, to talk about the technology or whatnot. And I think it was on your, your blog, just a little word that leapt out at me was the word lunky for a, a hole a hole in a wall for, for sheep. Yes. Yeah. A, a way for sheep to pass through, yeah. but only large enough for sheep, not for uh, any other animal, at least not any other farm animal. Are there other little words like that that are associated with uh, dry stone walling that people outside of the tradition wouldn't wouldn't understand? Well, the the same size and shape hole at the base of a wall, if it was spanning a stream, would be called a water pen. That might be another example. If you're trying to get across a fence, you might put stones extending out the sides to allow you to climb up one side and down the other, and those would be a style. These are words that I only know because of my involvement with the Dry Stone Walling Association of Great Britain. They're really good at documenting just that kind of information. Mm -hmm. uh, not only the way things uh, used to be described, but also how people refer to them today. I get my vocabulary primarily from there. There's none that I've really gotten from home. If there was a vocabulary for stone 
building in Vermont that uh, left the scene before I arrived. Right. Yeah. So what um, uh, what is the the size or extent of organizations like the one that you that you just mentioned? Are they are they worldwide? Or are they localized? The Dragstone Walling Association of Great Britain, as the name implies, is mainly in Great Britain. Uh, myself in the U.S. and some folks in other countries have said, "Not, not let us in." So uh, we've been able to adopt a lot of what they're doing in our turf. But I'd say that the association probably has maybe five or six hundred members. And there's a training and testing scheme associated with the association. So if someone wants to become a, a certificate holding member of the association, they can uh, be, go through a series of tests. And there probably are as many as uh, I don't know, three or 400 people that have done that over time. In the U.S., there's probably 30 or 40 what do you, what do you see as the uh, other than saving humanity? What what do you see as the uh, the future of uh, of this type of work? The built landscape is precious, I think, for ourselves just to have a connection to the landscape, for the future to know that we cared about it, that this time in the history of this place, people were active, and that stone, because it does stick around, is pretty good evidence of that. So just in those terms, I, I think it's an uh, important activity. Practically speaking, it's wonderful material because it doesn't require any outside influences to be useful. Most of the building materials we think of, most most of them, I would say, come from somewhere else. Uh, maybe uh, sawn lumber is the closest thing to another locally produced material that is extensively used for our built environment. But uh, they need nails, and where the nails come from? Probably Taiwan. So I just am attracted to the idea that we have a material right at hand that we can express ourselves with, that we can use for practical purposes, and that it can be something prized both by our, our time and future times. I think that's an excellent uh, place to, to end on, I think, on that hopeful note. Uh, so thank you very much for, uh, for you your man. answers. Thank you. been listening to the Living Heritage Podcast, a co-production of Heritage NL and CHMR Radio at Memorial University. You can find previous episodes on iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. We're on Twitter at HFNLCA. Do you have a question or a suggestion about an aspect of culture and heritage you want us to explore? Send us your mail and we'll do our best to answer it in an upcoming show. 
Email us at livingheritagepodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Lache Swing. Thanks for listening.